Welcome to Recovery Plus Podcast. Fuck yesterday, focus on today. I'm your host, Dr. Mainly Hannon. Here, we celebrate and honor people in recovery one conversation at a time. Let's talk. Welcome back. This is episode 28. Have any of you used hallucinogenics? For some, most of us can remember what that was like. What if those experiences actually can do not harm, but actually do good and make us feel better and actually reduce symptoms in a safe and responsible way? What would you do? Well, that question is answered by my next guest, Dr. Rakesh Jain. Dr. Jain is an MD, MPH, attended medical school at the University of Calcutta in India. He then attended graduate school at the University of Texas School of Public Health in Houston, where he was awarded a National Institute Center for Disease Control competitive traineeship. His research thesis focused on impact of substance abuse as well. He graduated from the School of Public Health in 1987, with a Master's of Public Health degree, Dr. Jane served a three-year residency in psychiatry at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Texas Medical School at Houston. He followed that by obtaining further specialty training by undergoing a two-year fellowship in child-adolescent psychiatry. In addition, Dr. Jane completed a postdoctoral fellowship in research psychiatry at the University of Texas Mental Sciences Institute in Houston. He was awarded the National Research Service Award for the support of this postdoctoral fellowship. He serves on several advisory boards focusing on drug development and disease state education. He was also recently the chair of the U.S. Psychiatric Congress held in Las Vegas and for several years has served as a member of the steering committee for U.S. Psychiatric Annual Congress. Take a listen. Hi, Dr. Jan. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. We've got a lot to cover, so I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Dr. Maley. It's a genuine pleasure to talk about a topic of such great importance. Well, let's do that. So in your perspective, what started the renewed studies in general for psychedelic medicine and therapies, especially after the 1970s Controlled Substance Act um, regarding LSD and psilocybin as a Schedule One? Yes, and MDMA too, right? right. So in, wasn't that terrible? 1970s <laughs> where... Uh, really the dark ages for psychedelic sciences, society at large became very frightened by a few stories and completely ignored the fact that hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of people were being benefited by psychedelics. So I think we, you're right. For about three decades, we had a near complete uh, silence. Right. Uh, but you know what happened? Something magical happened. And the, what was magic was... Uh, the re-emergence of very brave souls who said, we're not doing so well by people with our traditional armamentarium in addressing symptoms of both mental distress and mental wellness. Can we start looking at psychedelics again, but do it with more care, with more thought, with greater safeguards in a more controlled setting? And that's how I would say in the mid-90s, late-90s, the very first studies uh, came about, and that started the revolution that's going so strong today. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's being talked about all over the place in all news areas, and you are all over the place, and we'll get to that too. So for you personally, as a psychiatrist beginning in psychiatry and now a researcher, um, where did your interest come from? And, and before that, what were some of your initial concerns, and how did those change for you? Mm, beautiful set of questions that you ask. I'll perhaps take it in the order that you asked. Sure. Where does my interest in psychedelics come? And I think it comes not because of my training, because in my training, essentially, I was taught repeatedly, psychedelics, bad. Right. They are drugs. What they will do is only bad things. Nothing good is going to come out of it. So I actually came out of my pretty extensive medical training with one thought in mind stamp out psychedelics they are bad for people however this is what happened as i started maturing into my practice patients who had not particularly helped a great deal started coming to me and saying i on my own despite your opposition have been exploring the world of psychedelics and i have improvements that I have not noticed before, or there are other areas of life that I'm more cognizant of that are really helping me lead a better and more meaningful life. And that I would say took about five years for me to say, eh, that's not true. That's just one person. Sure. And then what happened gradually is I became aware that so many different people with such varied backgrounds who don't know each other are reporting the same thing. And I told myself, as a scientist, you really don't have a right to have a calcified belief system. You have to be more flexible. You have to think. You have to look at evidence and allow yourself to admit that your thinking was perhaps calcified and wrong. And that's where I first started exploring the older science of psychedelics. And Dr. Maley, I started looking at papers from the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s that were completely buried in the medical literature. Wow. I was never exposed to it. And I was stunned to see there were well over a thousand fairly good papers written back then, if you will, that did point out that there was promise to these agents. And then, of course, the Johns Hopkins studies that you're very familiar with, the New York University studies started coming out. I started conducting my own research. And here we are. Here we are, where I would like to take it forward to the very last question you asked, which was, what are we doing? Where are we? What are the knowns? What are the unknowns? And the knowns are the following. Mm -hmm. Number one, psychedelic sciences really do deserve a place in this entire toolkit that we have to be better human beings. Number two, they are not going to solve every problem for everybody. Sure. And number three, the only way forward is better research and conversations like you and I are having. Great. Because that's what is deserving and, and all of the clients that we're seeking your support um, and it's great to hear, you know, a lot of us who have studied in psychology and psychiatry probably have a similar, like, concern, like, 
what about the addiction? Like, how could mm. this, how can this actually help someone with addiction? And isn't this addictive in nature? And, you know, there's risks of addiction. What do you, what would you say to that? I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say you are exactly the kind of thoughtful clinician we would need in the field. We don't need proselytizers. Mm-hmm. What we definitely don't need uh, are people who believe in it so wholeheartedly that they're not willing to look at the potential downfalls. So let's maybe talk about addiction. Yes, great. So, yeah, absolutely. And then we can turn our attention to the use of these substances in a population that's already addicted. Yes, great. Uh, Because we we really do need to have that deep conversation. So first of all, let's talk about addiction. Great. It has been impossible in research studies to get animals, animal models, to get addicted to several different prominent psychedelics. They simply don't get addicted to it. And in human studies also, we have not seen with very many psychedelics. There are, however, some exceptions that I'll mention in a second. Mm -hmm. But for example, the more prominent ones, LSD, psilocybin, um, DMT, Mm -hmm. there is no biologically plausible way forward for a person to get addicted, physically addicted, physiologically addicted. But the couple of compounds that are a potential risk that do carry addiction potential that are prominent drugs in this world, Dr. Maley, mm-hmm. are ketamine and NVMA. Right. And both ketamine and MDMA absolutely, without a question, do carry risk Though even the risk with both of these is just to be substantially less, and I do mean substantially less than most of the drugs of concern. In fact, I saw a study recently that compared the risk of ketamine addiction to slightly lower than the risk of addiction to caffeine. Really? So, wow. but caffeine, by the way, is pretty addictive. It sure is. I just had some this morning. You. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm speaking to you right now, actually having my second <laughs> cup of coffee uh, that I went to great effort <laughs> to get, to get <laughs> right. So there is an addiction model to sure. caffeine, but it should it should remind us that while the risks are there with some substances, they're not there for most substances, and the risk that there are present for some substances doesn't seem to be so high that you and I, as clinicians mm-hmm. and your listeners, are to lock, stock, and barrel, just reject these compounds in people who currently have addiction difficulties. Okay. So sometimes the way forward to treating someone with addiction difficulties actually has been the utilization of interventions that on the surface may be problematic. But sure. once you dive into it, it actually solves problems. And here I'm very happy to provide you with a real-life example, Dr. Great. Mayley, that I think you and your listeners will love. Can't wait. Do it. So, yeah. So <laughs> here's a gentleman, uh, a patient of one of my dear colleagues, who has very severe alcohol dependence challenges, has been to seven or eight different clinical facilities um, residential facilities sure. with no benefits. And I know you have a strong interest in helping people mm-hmm. such as this gentleman. He's also even tried uh, a variety of medication-assisted alcohol uh, abstinence programs that didn't work for him. Mm-hmm. 
One day, he was in a bar and got into a fight, very intoxicated, got into a fight, and the police was called, and the police wasn't able to subdue him. And in that particular area, giving ketamine intramuscularly by the police or the EMT is appropriate. It is given as a way to reduce agitation, to not let the person harm themselves or harm somebody else. Wow. Now, lo and behold, this gentleman got two doses of ketamine just to reduce his, his agitation, got hauled off to the jail. He was discharged next day after he sobered up. And for the first time in, from what I'm told, 30 years, he entirely and spontaneously lost his desire to drink. Wow. And he could not understand it. He was like, why do I no longer want to drink? I love the fact that I don't want to drink. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not craving alcohol. Right. And that benefit for him lasted an entire three months. And mind you, he did not receive the ketamine in a therapeutic setting. He did not receive <laughs> it in the right set or setting. Nothing of that sort. Yet it helped. Now, why don't we do this? Why don't we forward what I just shared with you into clinical studies? Mm -hmm. And now we have several studies that look at ketamine. I'm using that as an example, sure. but in a minute, I'll also offer you MDMA mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As, as an example. But ketamine, now we have multiple studies from very different research centers that show that for both biological and psychological reasons, individuals who are simply unable to let go of substances that genuinely harm them have a much easier time both physiologically and psychologically getting rid of that substance and sometimes in ways that we as clinicians are left slack jawed we are left stunned that a chemical entity like this can be so helpful and recently, colleagues from New York University published a major study in a very major psychiatric journal in a blinded fashion showing mm -hmm. that ketamine-assisted therapy can be very helpful. So in conclusion, what I might say is, while I do fully understand the risk of addiction and diversion used with thought, used appropriately, there is shockingly great potential for multiple psychedelics to help with multiple kinds of addiction problems. And we haven't even yet talked about the opioids and ibogaine. But there does appear to be a solid way to think about lots of addictions and psychedelic medicines being helpful in such individuals. Wow. So for instance, like like depression, ketamine has been really found to be efficacious to reduce that. But when people talk about ketamine and induced um, like coma, what are your thoughts about that? Um, ketamine does not induce coma. Okay. Thank goodness. Uh, it does not. Um, so coma is a state sure. of uh, biologic uh, disappearance literally of the conscious mind and that right. does not happen okay. it's best to think of ketamine in two different ways one of it might be it's used as an anesthetic as a dissociative anesthetic but at lower doses at lower doses it has a very different profile there is i've never seen coma 
there's never been coma identified with ketamine use in the context I'm talking about, it can reliably produce a psychedelic effect. Now, psychedelic, as we all know, the literal translation of that is mind manifesting. Mm -hmm. And I've had patients on ketamine realize, not in their mind, but in their entire personhood, what they are doing with alcohol is so devastatingly not right by them and by their family members. Mm -hmm. Once they come out of the ketamine experience, they see the use of alcohol as ego dystonic. Uh They see it in a way that they have never seen it for maybe decades before. That's one aspect to it, which is the psychological, psychedelic aspect of it. But there also appears to be a biological phenomenon. This one we don't understand very well, Mm -hmm. which is why would NMD antagonism, which is what ketamine does, when you do it even episodically, Mm -hmm. like the gentleman, the example that I just gave you a few minutes ago, why does that brain, why does that particular person reject the very notion that alcohol is good or necessary for my survival? Why does that happen? We don't quite know that, but it may partly be because psychedelics, including ketamine, MDMA, ibogaine, etc., seem to break the hold of the default mode network. And default mode network, almost like a pit bull in people with addictions, seems to grab very hard in its jaws the executive mode network, the thinking part of the brain. And once you... Again, let me play with that analogy a little bit. So if you've got a dog that's grabbed on to a person's hand and won't let go, well, the person can't escape. But if for some reason I can relax the jaw of this dog even temporarily, mm-hmm. you can see, can't you, that someone can pull their hand out of the dog's mouth and not put the hand right back in the dog's mouth. Sure. That analogy may actually be biologically accurate in how psychedelics of all kinds, so many different kinds, are able to help very rapidly people break away from addiction behaviors and as importantly from addiction thinking that leads to addiction behaviors. Wow. So from a different angle... Because we know with addiction, it's not just substance use disorder. There's always this co-occurring or a mental health attachment like post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and depression. And as you know, with the pandemic, there's an increase with mental health issues all over, uh, as well as addiction. So what are some of your thoughts and some of the studies that have come out with like psilocybin, um, ayahuasca and others like DMT with the mental health side of some of the root causes of some of the addictions that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. So well said. Addictions often are a symptom of a challenge, right? That's They're right. not the challenge itself. Mm-hmm. And I read enough of your work and heard you enough to know that's <laughs> your thinking as well, mm-hmm. that it's okay to address addictions. In fact, it's a necessity but it's so much better if you can address the individual even before they got to the point of addiction. So post-traumatic stress disorder, an area of great interest and expertise for you, is also an interest for me. 
Uh, so many of our patients, our clients, have not been very fortunate in having a good, healthy childhood. And their scores on adverse childhood experiences tends to be through the roof. Right. And we often think of them as, oh, they're addicted to food. They're addicted to nicotine. They're addicted to alcohol. They're addicted to whatever the substance may be, cocaine, whatever the substance may be. But if we look at it a little bit differently, why did they even turn to it? It often, the answer often emerges is they turn to it because that is often the answer to the coping that they have. And of course, the coping uh, mechanisms, if they're not appropriate, end up to bite them. So that's where you and I come in. And that's where psychedelics can be so profoundly helpful. What they can do is take a very defended individual. Let's take, for example, the patient I shared with you. Sure. Uh, the story I shared with you, a gentleman in his 50s who is heavily tattooed up, has a police record that is as long as your arm. Mm-hmm. You know, the first thought you have is we have a criminal We have a person with alcohol addiction, but what we often don't fully get to appreciate is the child behind the person and the childhood they had and how that has affected the individual. And sometimes the individual themselves is entirely unaware of it. And that's where psychedelics come in. They truly can be mind manifesting. They can truly show you, help you see how your childhood traumas have played a role in your current difficulties and how processing them, which is much safer, much easier to do during a psychedelic experience, can actually lead to a resolution, not just of the grief, but also the coping mechanisms you've used in grief. So overall, Dr. Maley, the approach in the field is we do not necessarily think psychedelics have a true direct biologic anti-addiction effect, but they do it even wisely, even more wisely. They actually go after the root causes of addictions in many individuals. And that leads to not just an improvement in their addiction patterns, but often to a sustained drop, a persistent drop in addiction behaviors. So it reduces it completely. I mean, reduces that kind of addictive nature that abusive behavior. Yes, yes. So it appears to be a more fundamental fix of the problem, which of course is what you and I as clinicians deeply desire for our patients. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about some of your findings in the research around psilocybin. That's been getting a lot of play. Well, you you know better than I. What what are the 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 clinical trials um, focused on because there's there's two right there's the hallucinogens and the disassociative drugs which you just talked about ketamine and MDMA are disassociative if I'm correct and then there's the hallucinogens which we're talking about psilocybin DMT LSD ayahuasca um, from the from the hallucinogenic side um, how does how does treatment look like. If I came to you, Dr. Jane, and I'm like, I am mm-hmm. experiencing significant anxiety um, and like, like debilitating where I am now using drugs, how does the psilocybin work in my brain? Right. Yes, yes. So, my goodness, I have so many thoughts to I'm offer. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, because your question it's is broad. so good. Oh, yeah, no, I love it. 
the first thing I might want to propose to you and to your listeners is to completely drop two words from our vocabulary. The word number one I would recommend dropping because it's inaccurate is dissociative. Right. And the other word that is really worth dropping is hallucinatory. Because even though dissociation and hallucinations are a small part of a psychedelic experience, sure. there are many, many, many people who have a psychedelic experience who don't have dissociation and don't have hallucinations. So the medical community is at the moment working very hard to completely eradicate those two words because they both are mm -hmm. pejorative and inaccurate. A much better phrase to use would be, let's just call it what it is, psychedelics. psychedelics. Mind manifesting, which may or may not come with dissociation, which may or may not come with the auditory, visual, whatever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whatever kind of hallucinatory behavior. Now, psychedelics, you mentioned psilocybin, that at the moment does appear to be the single most promising agent, as far as I can see, sure. in addition to MDMA, is not available legally outside of a clinical setting anywhere in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. No, that's about to change. Right. The Oregon experiment, right? as you know, yes. yeah, yeah. And the Colorado experiment, which will take a little bit longer, mm -hmm. but the Oregon experiment starts very quickly. By April of 2023, anybody who's an American citizen, and actually possibly a world citizen, I don't think it'll be limited just to Americans, if they travel to Oregon, they can have a psychedelic experience with psilocybin, even if they don't have a diagnosis. So everything's about to change in about four or five months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And Colorado, which is a full year behind the Oregon experiment, we shall see. <laughs> but I suspect it will be the same, same way. But right now, for your listeners, if they do wish to, uh, wish to get the benefits of psilocybin, they have two legal ways they can do it. Number one, enroll in a trial. And I'll tell you a little bit about where your listeners can go find trials for mm -hmm. psilocybin that are currently enrolling. Well, the other is to travel outside of the country, right. which is quite expensive, mm -hmm. I agree. But there are many high-quality centers in Jamaica. I'm familiar with a couple of them. Mm -hmm. There are many, many high-quality centers in Central and South America that are available. Those are the possible ways to do it. And let me talk about that a bit, and then I'll return to your question as to what should a participant expect if they were to mm -hmm. receive psychedelic therapy. So the best way to find out more about how to avail yourself of uh, a clinical study is to go to a wonderful website called clinicaltrials.gov. So it's one word, mm -hmm. clinical trials. It's a plural, S dot gov, G-O-V. And it's a website that's maintained by the U.S. federal government. And anybody who does any studies uh, in the U.S. actually is required to register. And you just have to type in psilocybin or psychedelic or whatever you wish to. And then you can see all the options available. And then you can check it out. Wow. Uh, and many people have enrolled that way, Dr. Meili, and mm -hmm. have benefited from it. So I would encourage people to look into it. The odds are 
it'll be a bit difficult to access um, a study. But having said that, mm-hmm. having said that, I know lots of people who have gone through studies and if someone's interested in the mean clinical criteria, they can look into it. Now, I've done some studies um, and you actually have read them because that's how you and I got connected. Right. We were very interested, mm-hmm. Dr. Mayli, in what actually happens to people when they use psychedelics on their own. Yeah. What kind of impact do they have? And at the moment, it seems there are millions of Americans who, despite the fact that these medications are Schedule One, are actively using their own psychedelics. We wanted to know why. What improvements are they seeing? And here's the upshot to it. Psychedelics, including psilocybin, appear not just to improve elements of psychiatric challenges like depression and anxiety, uh, even perhaps sleep. But more importantly, as far as I'm concerned, they actually help us become better human beings. And by that, and that's a pretty big statement right. I made, by, <laughs> sure that, <is. laughs> by that, let me, let me expand on that if you give me sure. a minute to think Please. it out aloud with you. What makes us a better human being? And I would have to say it would be a sense of empathy, mm-hmm. a sense of joy, a sense of connection, a sense of togetherness, a sense of social responsibility. Those are, I think, some of the elements of being a better human being. And perhaps some other elements might be feel happier, have more optimism, have more resilience, have more enthusiasm. I suspect you would agree that these are all components of being a better version of Rakesh. That's me. So what our research is showing, and now we're up to about 3,000 people who have taken part in our study called the PAUSE survey. What we're finding is a consistent and actually a rather large effect size on many of these elements that I've talked about. In fact, nothing that we've explored so far in terms of wellness hasn't yet been improved by psychedelics. Psychedelics appear to be a very broad spectrum changer of humans. Mm-hmm. That's that's a kind of a wild statement I made, even as I said it, I was like, mm, wow. wow, that's a bold statement. <laughs> sure but what if the data supports that? What if the evidence does show that in the majority of people, that the use of psychedelics expands their horizons, makes them a better citizen of the world, makes them a better partner, makes them less prone to addictions, makes them more willing to be altruistic. What if it does all that? That'd be amazing. Then should it not be? Yeah. <laughs> so that's been converted into a publication. And perhaps in your show notes, you mm-hmm. can put a link to the paper me and my colleagues wrote so your listeners can check great. out that for themselves. Absolutely. I mean, that that in itself, and that's still going on or that study is completed? No, we have... We have analyzed the first 1,500 people, but we know there's hundreds of other people (laughs) who want to contribute to it. So when you go to clinicaltrials.gov, if you type in PAWS, Uh P-A-W-S, like an animal PAWS, you will find that study. And by the way, PAWS stands for Psychedelics and Wellness Survey. We are very interested 
in helping people with depression and anxiety, as a medical community, that is our number one goal. Sure. But I, Dr. Maybe, I don't want to limit ourselves. I don't think the whole purpose of life is to live without problems. I think the purpose of life is to live a life filled with meaning, with purpose, with joy, being kind to oneself, being kind to nature, being kind to society. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, the psychedelic literature that we have generated and others have generated clearly shows psychedelics really bring out not only the best in us, but they bring out the best in us that can often endure, not for a week or two weeks, but often for a lifetime. Sustaining. That are sustainable. That would be great, you know, and and so I think that that link is going to be really helpful. I think the biggest thing that you're talking about is there's a lot of science around this now. Prior to and the fear of the 1970s, you know, was science. It wasn't scientifically done well. Would you agree? Um. Yeah, but I do want to be kind to the folks before that. And the reason why I want to is because the standards were very different then. We did not obtain informed consent. Right. But with all that said, I am struck by the bravery of many clinicians and over 100,000 patients. Uh, This is before the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And... The data is not as bad as I think sometimes the medical community makes it out to be. It's certainly better now. Sure. But if you and I did not have any access to the data in the last 20, 30 years, I suspect you and I even today would say, why did they not teach that to us in our our professional training? Right. Why did they hide it from us? What were they afraid of? And the answer is, it wasn't that they were afraid of it. It just society told medicine, you better shut it down because we are too afraid of it. And now that society has been re-educated, what I'm finding is like this podcast that we're doing right now, Mm -hmm. the interest in psychedelic sciences is at a very high level. Sometimes I worry a little bit. It may be at a slightly too high level. It's apex. Yeah. Hmm. And that's why what you said earlier, let's be fair balanced about it. Let's not assume everything about psychedelics is good. There are downsides and our own research, the pause paper that I talked with you about just a minute or two ago does show about 10 to 13% of people did not get benefits from psychedelics. In fact, they received some harm. Mm -hmm. Some of them, very few of them, that's true, but even one person out of 10,000, we need to talk about. Absolutely. So it's not to be assumed by our listeners that psychedelics are automatically good. No, they are clearly very beneficial, and you can increase the chances that will be helpful to you by having a good support system, making sure you are in a clinical study, the set and setting is proper, you have good follow-up, you have good integration work that goes along with it. But it is important to not be so enthusiastic that you're blinded to all the possible downsides. Right. To reiterate, there's no cure to be 
Uh, there's no just general cure. So when you seek these studies to do it with, you know, some information, not go in blindly, as you were saying, Dr. Jane, I think that's a really important thing. You know, not everything is great, but there is some um, solid research, a lot of it that is indicating success rates and reduced symptomology and a, and a higher increase of well-being. You said it. Everything you said is golden and is the entire truth. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit from a person like a lot of folks are doing, for instance, microdosing. I'm hearing that all over the place. I'm hearing that in the in the recovery um, community and everybody outside of the community who might be experiencing some depression and anxiety. Tell me a little bit about what your what the research suggests. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about microdosing because here we have some um, paradoxical findings yes. and it's very important your listeners um, fully think this out uh, as we discuss this. So mm -hmm. I started out being a firm believer in microdosing. It just made sense. It just made sense. You are going to have low doses. You will have it on your own. And... Uh, lo and behold, your depression is better, your life is better, sure. your wellness is better. Because so many people were reporting to me that right? they're doing it. I'm hearing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, I have some cautionary notes, and there are two big cautionary notes. Number one, it is now becoming apparent as a result of multiple studies in microdosing coming from entirely different researchers that the microdosing benefits do not appear to be coming from the microdose itself is from expectation bias. So now there have been studies of people thinking they're getting a microdose but getting a placebo while others are actually getting a microdose and essentially we cannot separate them. Really? They both are getting better. Yeah. Interesting. So mm -hmm. I would encourage your listeners to actually explore the scientific data here. And this surprised me because right. I was hearing so many positive stories that I just made the assumption that good clinical studies would support it. And they are not supporting it. There's not been a single microdosing study that conclusively shows us that it's the microdose that helps. What ends up happening is it's becoming clear that I may be on the right track in making the statement that someone who takes a microdose has the belief system appropriately, I am doing the right thing for myself. And that belief system in and of itself is enough to change thinking and behaviors in a positive way. Placebo effect, right? Is that it is a placebo effect. That's one way to look at it. Uh -huh. The other way that's also appropriate to look at it is expectation bias. Mm -hmm. If you expect a Diet Coke to taste good before you've tasted it, the Diet Coke tastes better. If you expect the Diet Coke to taste flat before you've tasted it, even though I gave you exactly the same Diet Coke, weirdly, we human beings perceive it as flat. So that's the expectation bias. So anyone who's microdosing, please be aware of it, that at the moment, the data strongly suggests the microdose itself is not the helpful agent. It's a change in thinking and behavior and taking action that is a benefit. But there's another bigger worry, Dr. Mailey, that mm -hmm. I've got, which is the potential harm. Right. So 
microdosing, the doses may be small, but there are many tissues in the human body that are actually harmed more with low levels chronic damage than to high levels of something. So I'll give you an example. Wow. I'll give you an example. We at the moment know that when people are lifting weights, their blood pressure goes way up, right. like ridiculously high, but only goes up for a few seconds. Those individuals actually do not have a high risk of strokes. But we do know that people who have much lower blood pressure increase than someone lifting weights, but has had it chronically, their risk of developing a stroke Higher. or a heart attack is dramatically increased. Right. Right. What we're finding is some of the substances people are microdosing with, in particular psilocybin, they can potentially end up damaging their heart. Wow. Damaging the valves of the heart. This is not just a theoretical concern. This actually is a real worry that's brewing in my community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would urge anyone who's microdosing, please, please be careful. Um, and we simply don't have the data. And all the data that we do have is actually pointing to two worries. One is increased risk of physical harm, but the other concern that we have is it may not be the microdose that's helping you. The expectation so, bias. Yeah, so keep your eyes open, but so far microdosing hasn't worked out quite the way I had anticipated. So I think that I really appreciate that warning label because with all the movement and excitability about the true data that's coming out right now, what you're participating in and others in this community, I think is fantastic. And there's always this other side to keep in mind. So when you go to Oregon and you want to just be mindful, you want to be an educated person, get all the information from, you know, viable sources that Dr. Jan has been talking about, because that's going to be really important for your own health. Would you say that, Dr. Jan? Yes. I, everything you said, I would like to underline mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and support in what you have stated. The Oregon experiment is not about microdosing. It's right. going to be about macrodosing and entirely on target when you said, make sure you are psychologically and physically uh, the appropriate candidate uh, yes, these medications are very safe. They are wildly safe, but they're not so safe that someone with their underlying heart problem or an underlying significant psychiatric issue that hasn't been addressed, say bipolar disorder or psychosis, should ever be exposed to psychedelics because they could come out of that experience worse. much worse off than yeah. better. Yeah, so and thoughtfulness is important. I think that's great, and I appreciate that because there are some folks that shouldn't do this, right? Yeah, <laughs> it would be contraindicated. Like people with, would what, what type of folks would you say probably not the best for you to do these studies or to take this? Yeah, I I so appreciate your fair balanced approach to this. Uh, it's it's a wise approach to take. And there mm -hmm. are a few folks who I really would encourage to take a deep breath and pause before you, before you proceed any further. And those would be folks with the current psychotic disorder. 
So psychosis doesn't just live in schizophrenia. One can have psychotic symptoms with mood disorders, Mm -hmm. etc. At the moment, the fears are considerable that a psychedelic experience could make them much worse. So that's one group for sure. The other group, Dr. Mayli, I would say really do need to take a pause would be someone with fairly unstable bipolar disorder where they're having a significant number of manic or hypomanic episodes. So both Please one and two. Be, yeah, both uh-huh. one and two, but more so I would say probably one. Right. I would also recommend if someone doesn't have the physical health to handle a psychedelic and psychedelics, majority of them, sure, it's temporary, but it can be a substantial elevation in blood pressure and pulse. There are individuals who can go up by 30, 40, 50 millimeters of mercury on their blood pressure. For most of us, for 40 minutes, an hour, two hours, not a problem. But what if you are 65 years old, have an underlying atherosclerotic disease, maybe even have atrial fibrillation? That could be incredibly dangerous. Dangerous enough that it could actually lead to death. So there are physical reasons and psychological reasons that have to be kept in mind before one embarks on a psychedelic journey. I so appreciate that because, again, we want this to be as as balanced and fair, and I so appreciate this perspective. Um, because, uh, like, to your point, there's this, like, apex and almost toxic, toxic positivity around this research. Because I think everybody, especially now post-pandemic, well, we're still in it, wants that, like, what can I do? I feel like crap. You know, it's been such Mm. a long time since we've been able to connect and, you know, mental illnesses through the roof and our children and all of this kind of stuff that I think all of us, I mean, I know for myself, it's like, man, we just need a break. And with this advent of renewed excitement and research, all a lot of it very, very good and positive and hopeful, you know, I, I think needs to be tempered with a balanced approach. So again, I really appreciate that um, around the microdosing conversations, just the the fitness piece of criteria and the psychological kind of foundations that need to be considered um, and who would be, you know, benefit from this and who might not, which kind of leads me to my other question. Ayahuasca is huge. Like when I was mm-hmm. working in treatment, some folks who what went through our treatment program also followed it for aftercare on this ayahuasca journey. And we know that millennia, this has been used as a religious ceremonial type of mm-hmm. drug. So what are your thoughts about that? Mostly quite positive, Dr. Maley. Mm-hmm. I have uh, two sets of experiences with ayahuasca that I, I'm happy to share sure. with you. Number one, of course, is my patients who have either underground used ayahuasca here in the U.S. or they've traveled to, in particular, Mexico and Costa Rica mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. ayahuasca journeys. And I have seen, honest to goodness, some very positive results in people with both mental health challenges and addiction issues. And underneath both of them often is PTSD. And I've seen some really, really strong positive results. I will have to point out and occasionally I've seen drastically negative results. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, there have been a few people who have returned, uh, I have to say, psychotic, persistently psychotic, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one person in particular who has returned with such dramatic onset of manic symptoms and grandiosity that she has lost all of her social contacts, has lost her job, has lost her uh-huh. home. And mm-hmm. I have to blame ayahuasca. I really do. But maybe what I'll blame is the person who did decide to accept her in the ayahuasca mm-hmm. experience because she clearly had a diagnosis of bipolar one disorder to begin with. Uh-huh. But generally speaking, I would give a person who's wanting to try ayahuasca, if they want to travel overseas, I would generally say the following to them. Let's make sure your preparation work is incredibly appropriate. Let's make sure your physical and psychological health is there in order to go through that. And please remember, dear patient, dear friend, dear colleague, whoever is going, that the key to ayahuasca isn't the ayahuasca experience. It's the post-ayahuasca integration. What will you Mm. do with all the learnings you're going to come back from? What are your plans? And you don't want to make that an afterthought. You actually want to make that the main course. So some of my patients who go think that experience itself is the fix to their problems. And the way I have educated them, and let me see if you like Mm -hmm. what I tell them. I tell them that think of ayahuasca as a catalyst. It will start the chain reaction of getting better. But a catalyst itself is not where the raw material comes from. The raw material is you. It's your past, it's your present, and your future. If the catalyst is allowed to work on you, then it will do its maximum effect. But if you take you out of the process, then the catalyst has nothing to do. So overall, I think ayahuasca is a terrific, terrific intervention. The active ingredient in ayahuasca is, of course, DMT. Mm-hmm. And DMT, you will find this interesting, is now being vigorously developed around the world as an injectable. Wow. Yes, it's being purified, isolated. Uh, and quite recently, the world's first phase one study of DMT has been completed. I just reviewed its poster in a phase two, which is mm-hmm. where you actually use it in people with psychiatric illnesses. And you find this amazingly interesting. It's not just safe. The entire psychedelic experience is 30 minutes or less. Wow. That's right. That's That's right. Really quick. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the question is how quick is too quick? How long is too too long? long. Right, right, right. But at the moment, uh, we do think psychedelics that literally last 15 minutes to 30 minutes may potentially be valuable. There are certain other psychedelics that last 24 hours, like Mm Ibogaine, that may be appropriate in other settings. So the world of psychedelics is a big, broad one. But to narrow it down to what you and I have been discussing, I think ayahuasca has incredible potential, both from a psychological perspective and from a biologic perspective. I think that's really interesting. I mean, there's so many questions, but I will contain myself. With with ayahuasca and just, just kind of the experience, you and I, before we even talked today, we shared our own experiences. You know, and you mm-hmm. mentioned, like, there's, there are like t- three elements 
when taking psychedelics that could be therapeutic, and I don't mean at a party, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when you're dropping acid. Um, because most people's trip are not great. And most mm-hmm. of us can remember those trips. And your trip was great. <laughs> yeah. Mine, not yeah. so much. What do you think the difference is? I mean, in general. Um, yeah. And then we get talking about kind of as a as a potential person in that study, kind of, it's not like hanging out with other people doing it um, at a party. It's very, very different in terms of controls, right? Absolutely. I think intention setting is probably, (laughs) if you want to think about it as three pillars, Dr. Bailey, Uh a very important pillar to a successful psychedelic experience is intention setting. So if Mm -hmm. you're going to a party and someone is saying, um, 45 minutes a day. Hey, I got something. You want to try it? And say, sure. You know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm a joiner. Let's do it. That's the wrong kind of intention setting. Absolutely. Intention setting. Yeah. Intention setting would be obviously if you're in a clinical setting, working with your counselor, your therapist about Mm -hmm. what exactly are you intending to do? Uh, do you think of the psychedelic as a catalyst or as the main course? Those are some of the basic questions you would ask. Mm-hmm. But to to kind of talk about what you were alluding to in a non-clinical setting, even then, I do think intention setting is important. And sometimes the intention can be, I don't wish to set an intention. I want to see what comes up. That's an intention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a very healthy intention. I'm approaching this with an open mind. Right. Sure. And I want to explore my mind and I want to better understand myself. That's perfectly acceptable. The second is have a very safe journey because those who don't plan for a safe journey almost always end up with a poor journey because the fear of control, the fear of harm is so overwhelming that it doesn't allow you to really relax into the experience. Mm, Good point. But the third one, the third pillar, which is as important as the two pillars we talked about is integration. What do you want to do with these pearls of wisdom that you took a deep dive into your mind's ocean? You, you, You put a lot of effort into doing this you found those pearls, you brought it to the surface. Now what? what do you want to do with them? Excellent. If you realize, for example, and here's an example, uh, that me using alcohol is cruelty towards myself, and I don't need to do this in order to cope with my past childhood experiences. If that's what you found as a pearl of wisdom when you were in a psychedelic experience, now what do you want to do with it? Because it's not enough just to say, I did it. Now you've got to convert it into a clinical meaning. So that's what I was suggesting to you. These three pillars, when they're executed properly, really are what lead to great benefits. Oh, I love that. I think that is such an important thing for people to hear. Whether you are part of a clinical trial or not, um, really important. So let's briefly, if we can, I know there's... A, just a few minutes if if a person is part of a clinical trial what does that look like for them with psilocybin and if they're coming in to to reduce like say smoking because isn't there is a there is a huge trial isn't that right with johns hopkins Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. on smoking right yes 
So yes, what does that look it? like? I think that's amazing. <laughs> it's a three-year study with $17 million or something. You know more about it than I do, but I saw that and I was like, wow, it's the first federal grant. Correct? Is that right? Yeah. That's so amazing. Smoking kills, <laughs> yeah, smoking kills half a million Americans a year. Yeah, and I just stopped Smoke. three months ago, so I get how hard this is. Oh, wow. Well, first of all, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And I did not do any psychedelics just to know that. But tell us a little bit about that. If I were to go in, what, yeah. how would that look? What's the controls? Yeah, yeah. So even though it is psilocybin, it's really important to appreciate that most of us in the world of addictions and psychedelics do not see psychedelics as the main course. Absolutely. We see psychotherapy as the main course right. facilitated by a psychedelic. Yes. So what should a uh, participant expect? They should expect very good high-level psychotherapy for hours before mm -hmm. they even mm -hmm. get a psychedelic. During the psychedelic experience, the day that they are dosed, and in most studies it's two different times, there'll be very little talking during the experience, but right after the psychedelic experience, there'll be a lot of integration work with two facilitators. And the psychotherapy is brilliant. Oh, nice. it, it often follows elements of internal family systems, which I know you're mm -hmm. familiar with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It follows principles of CBT. Yes. It follows principles. Sometimes psychodynamic principles get mm -hmm. pulled into it. And needless to say, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy elements, act therapy elements are mm -hmm. all melded in to help the person nice. really make sense of, of what of came up. And also to create a game plan. Because as I said before, the mm -hmm. third pillar, which is what are you going to do with these pearls that you so bravely dived into this ocean that we call our unconscious mind, our subconscious mind. You went there. What are you going to do with it? What do you what kind of help do you need to make sense of it so that you can incorporate these changes into your daily living? That is what your participants, that's what an individual going through a trial should expect. And they should stay pretty positive about it. The results, as you alluded to earlier yeah. from these trials, is sometimes more than 100% better than the best results we've ever achieved with any other interventional trial. Wow. Again, it's important to note that it's that the actual chemicals themselves is not the main menu. It's in collaboration with psychotherapy. Is that would that be accurate? That is strikingly accurate. So accurate that I will add nothing to it <laughs> other than to say, well said. And I hope your listeners fully appreciate that psychedelics are catalysts. And catalysts work on systems that are willing to be changed. It just need a jump start. And that's what psychedelics do. Awesome. One last question. Where do you see these treatments that we talked about in the following years? Or what do you hope for, actually? Mm, what I'm hoping for is uh, where you started the conversation, which is a fair, balanced placement of psychedelic sciences. Mm -hmm. I do not think they will kill off psychology, addiction mm -hmm. treatments, psychiatry, but they will end up helping all of these three specialties that often work together. In 
terms, where do I see it going? I do think we're in for a great treat. We're going to continue using classical substances like you and I were talking about ayahuasca that's been used for thousands of years. But please don't be surprised if in the next four or five years, there'd be a variety of ayahuasca, DMT, which will be available in a doctor's office where the patient goes in and is discharged within an hour, hour and a half. Don't be surprised (laughs) if that would be also available. Now, one won't replace the other. Some of us would prefer one over the other. For some of us, the other might be better than the first one, no matter what the case might be. But I think the genie is out of the bottle, (laughs) Dr. Meili. Psychedelic sciences are here to stay. Well, amazing. And again, we're at the top of the hour, and I know you're a busy person. So thank you so much for being here and asking and answering all these questions. I would love to talk to you more down the road. I wish you the very best in the new year and can't wait to hear from you and other studies that are are doing this very brave work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Maley. My best to you and your listeners. Take care. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Recovery Plus Podcast, Fuck Yesterday, Focus on Today. I'm your host, Dr. Maylee Hennon, celebrating and honoring people in recovery one conversation at a time. This podcast is sponsored by Red Door Coaching and Consulting, and you can find my podcast on Amazon, Apple, and Spotify. Also, you can find me at my website at www.reddoorcc.com. You can email me at mhennon at reddoorcc.com if you're interested in transformational coaching. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.